This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Out of the Box, an ongoing series where we explore alternative ways to teach and learn done in collaboration with Anyaman Preschool. Today on the show, I have with me Shari Tishman. She's a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a senior research associate at Harvard Project Zero, where she formerly served as director. So her research focuses on the development and teaching of thinking, the role of close observation in learning and learning in and through the arts. So she's going to join me now to talk more about her work through Project Zero and also the pleasure and practice of slow looking and how slow looking can support deep learning across topics and is also accessible to learners of all ages. Welcome, Shari. How are you today? I'm very good, Julie. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. So you're joining us all the way from the States today, Shari. Thank you so much for doing that. And, you know, just to uh, let's talk about Project Zero first, right? So I know you've been with Project Zero, am I correct, more than three decades now? That is correct. Okay. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the history of Project Zero, but also how you became involved in it? Sure, sure. It's, um, well, as you mentioned, Project Zero uh, is uh, based at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It's a research center there. It's been around for sort of, it's been around for about 55 years, which is a shockingly long time for a research center that is funded by external grants. Um, (laughs) I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the work in a moment, but maybe I'll say a word about the sort of funny name, Project Zero, because mm. people ask us about that. And uh, 55 years ago, uh, a philosopher who worked at uh, Harvard University named Nelson Goodman started Project Zero. And he started it, um, he was very interested in how people think and learn in the arts. He was interested in what he called cognition in the arts. And he was sort of near the end of his career, and he's a very well-known philosopher, and he was very certain about certain things, and he was quite certain that there was just zero communicable knowledge about cognition in the arts. So he wrote a grant and entitled the Project Zero, and I actually think that particular grant may not have been funded, but the name stuck, the idea that there was sort of zero knowledge about cognition in the arts, and, um, and the name stuck. One of the things that, and and so it started as one research project and grew and grew and grew in a minute. I'll say a moment, a bit about that. But one of the really smart things that he did early on was he hired two graduate students to help him. One was David Perkins, who he hired um, to help him think about creativity. And another was a young researcher named Howard Gardner, who he hired to help him think about intelligence. He sort of ran that grant and after a little while said, okay, you guys take this over. And so they, um, although Nelson Goodman was the founding director, it was really David Perkins and Howard Gardner who sort of gave a real start to Project Zero. So one thing led to another and you know, we began various different projects. I uh, came to Project Zero a little over 30 years ago as a, as a graduate student working on a project with David Perkins. And I never intended to make it my sort of life's work, <laughs> but the work was interesting. And basically what Project Zero does is it, you know, at any given time, there might be eight or nine or 10 different, you know, modest sized research projects going on. Modest being, you know, might have a staff of three or four or five people. Um, Our funders have um, varied from, you know, federal funding, departments of education, international funding through um, other countries, you know, bureaus of schooling or uh, uh, departments of education. Sometimes we work with particular school systems, private philanthropists, but our projects always sort of focus at the intersect of 
research and practice, and they always are interested in learning something new about high-level cognition, how people think and learn in rich contexts, learning something new, and developing some kind of practical framework that can help educators or others take that knowledge and do something with it. Mm. Um, we don't so much train in, in, the, in the programs we develop, but we sort of try to develop ideas that might be useful in educational settings and sort of give them a push out into the world. Um, and that's what we do. And some of the frameworks some of your listeners may have heard of, I mean, uh, we've developed something called Teaching for Understanding and Visible Thinking and Artful Thinking I know we'll talk about today. Pedagogy of Play is another recent project. And there are many, many. And for any listeners interested in what Project Zero does, we have a website where you can just click on the projects page and see a list of all the various things that we've been involved in. And we try to make that work accessible to anybody who might be interested. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a brief history and how I got there. And by the way, I, I, as I said, I never intended to be there. But 30-something years later, I couldn't leave because the work has been really interesting. Mm -hmm. So you've been able to explore many, many different things then through, uh, through Project Zero in that sense. That is true. And, I, and, I've, and I've really grown as a, both an educator and as an, a human being through the, the, the gift of being able to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And let's talk about the thinking routines that have been developed by Project Zero. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, easily accessible, and they've also been used around the world. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about them and, and why you think they are so powerful. Sure. Well, um, the thinking routines developed sort of what was the sort of second stage of an original research project that was looking into something that we were calling thinking dispositions. This was, this was probably over 20 years ago when this notion first came along. And at the time, most schools and other organizations that were interested in teaching critical thinking or creativity thought of critical thinking or creativity as um, a set of skills that you might acquire. So, so you might have a long list of skills for critical thinking. They often tended toward skills that might be associated with logic. Um, and, and the idea was if you could just teach people these skills, they'd be able to go off and be good critical thinkers or good creative thinkers. And, and to some extent, that's true. But we believe that thinking is more than just a matter of skill, that it's a, a matter of character or disposition. It involves attitudes and spirit and emotion and orientation and community and all these other things that really support skills in use. And we did some research to try to figure out what some of those other elements in addition to skills might be. And one of the important things that we found was that often people have thinking skills, they, they have the capacity to use skills, but what we sometimes lack is the sensitivity or the alertness to occasion to use those skills. So for example, I might be a good decision maker and I might be able to think of pros and cons on both sides of a decision and think it through in a balanced way. But I might not notice times when it's appropriate to do that. So this sort of noticing is a really important part of um, developing good critical thinking habits or creative thinking habits. And there are other parts as well, like motivation and so forth. So we had this sort of, so we developed this idea of thinking dispositions and then, um, 
as often happens at Project Zero, a funding opportunity came around mm -hmm. where there was a Swedish philanthropist who was into who ran some schools in Sweden and was interested in promoting thinking dispositions. So we developed a project where we tried to develop a framework and a set of sort of actionable uh, lessons or ideas that would try to teach thinking dispositions. And honestly, I'm not sure we fully solve that problem yet. But one of the ideas that we developed was the idea when we asked ourselves, well, how do people develop good habits, whether they're habits of mind or any other kind of habits? And one of the ways that people develop habits is by engaging in routine behaviors. So we thought, hmm, what are some thinking routines that might be developed habitually that can call these sort of thinking skills into play at moments when they count. And think, thinking routines came out of that. That's sort of the basic background. So what a thinking routine is, is a, a short series of questions or prompts, usually two or three, maybe four at the most, that use very accessible everyday language and concepts to sort of engage us in some thinking that can quickly go pretty deep. So a classic example that we like to give, there's a um, one one of our most popular thinking routines. Um, it's called See, Think, Wonder. And it's just three simple questions. What do you see or what do you notice? Mm -hmm. Which is a really interesting question. We might get to that later when we talk about slow looking. What do you think? Which is actually a question that asks you to develop an interpretation or an explanation. So that's really a, an area of critical thinking that's quite important. And then, what do you wonder? Which is a question that pushes us beyond an interpretation or an explanation and asks us to sort of go to the next level. Now that we have a story to tell, what new questions can we ask that can keep us thinking? So that's an example of a thinking routine. And um, the, pro the, the project in Sweden or funded by the Swedish philanthropist was called Visible Thinking. Mm -hmm. And we developed many thinking routines in the context of that project. But then the idea of thinking routines became kind of sticky. So many other projects, zero projects started developing thinking routines because just as you say, um, they're very accessible. Teachers or our educators can use them very easily. They're actually often used in museum contexts and informal learning contexts as well as school contexts. Um, they are accessible to young children, to adults and so forth. So they became a a good vehicle, um, a good vehicle for teaching thinking. Yeah, and I imagine that could even uh, be used in, in an organizational sort of setting. You know, it, it, there's, there's no, yeah, there's no limits to it, really. Absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 they, and they often are, as a matter of fact, used. You know, I might say one, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, what are the characteristics? You could put any three questions together. Does that make it a thinking routine? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is no. Um, I think there's some special characteristics, and I won't name them all, but I'll name a couple that I think are really important. The first is that, that thinking routines almost always start with a question that invites the user to think or look for themselves. So instead of a instead of a routine that says, tell me three things that you know about X or what background knowledge do you have about Y, the, a routine starts with, what do you notice? What do you think? Because we believe that it's incredibly powerful for people to surface their own ideas 
as a foundation for building new ideas. So thinking routines almost always draw on the user's own background knowledge. And they also are uh, another characteristic about them that I like a lot is that they're really designed, they don't have to be used with other people, you can use them solo, but they were very powerful when you're using them with another person or a small group of people, because as you hear other people's ideas, you can use those um, as more sort of more inspiration for you to build your own ideas. And I imagine, you know, it, it's so much more accessible because you start from a place where you are comfortable, right? Just, you know, what do you see? You know, it's not like, like you said, you know, name three things about this topic, which is really scary if you don't know anything about it, right? It's so confronting. So this is a nice way to sort of uh, open up things that are already there, isn't it? It's very, very accessible. I like that. A- absolutely. And, and one of the, and, you know, there's, there's sort of a hidden message there that I particularly like. Often learners, especially young learners, but also adults, think of knowledge as something outside of themselves Mm -hmm. that they have to get and acquire. But I believe that we're all part of the story of building knowledge. And so I like that thinking routines sort of tacitly communicate an inclusive view of knowledge that sort of sends the message, you too are part of the enterprise of building knowledge in this world. It's not just something that you passively get, but rather it's something that you're actively involved in. Mm-hmm. Okay, I love that. Um, let's just go for a quick break, Sherry. When we come back, let's talk more about uh, another project that you're involved in, which is called Artful Thinking. I'm speaking today to Sherry Tishman. She's a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She's a senior research associate at the Harvard Project at Harvard Project Zero, where she formerly served as director. It's another episode of Out of the Box, and we are exploring alternative ways to teach and learn. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Out of the Box on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Out of the Box on The Bigger Picture, our monthly series where we explore alternative ways to teach and learn and which is done in collaboration with Anyaman Preschool. Today on the show, I have the lovely Shari Tishman. She's a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She's a senior research associate at Harvard Project Zero, where she formerly served as director. And today we're talking about her work, basically, and also, uh, you know, all her research, which focuses on the development of teaching of thinking and also the role of close observation in learning and learning in and through the art. So before the break, Shari, you were sharing more about Project Zero. Uh, you were sharing more about, you know, how you've some of the programs that you guys have come up with. Now I want to talk about something else that you've been heavily involved in, which is a project called Artful Thinking. And that helps students and teachers to use art as a tool in critical thinking. Can you tell me more about that? And, and I guess, you know, also expand on why art is so valuable. Sure. Um, Well, the Artful Thinking Project grew out of the Visible Thinking Project that we were talking about earlier. So basically, basic ideas, teaching, thinking dispositions, but this time the focus is on art. It was originally developed um, with a school department in the United States, who, and they were interested in helping regular classroom teachers who weren't art specialists use looking at art as a vehicle for teaching thinking. So that was sort of the charge of the project. How can we do that? Um, We had thinking routines on our mind. And, um, you know, one, I mean, one reason that art is such an exciting place to develop critical thinking skills, if you think about when we look at art and talk about art, whatever kind of art, 
could be visual art or other forms of art. Um, art is incredibly complex, right? I mean, art artworks are complex. They admit of multiple interpretations. You can look at them from lots of points of view. Um, there's information in the world out there about them, but also your own impressions and perceptions are so important in terms of understanding a work of art. And all of these characteristics of works of art are also characteristics of the big challenges that we need to think about in the world, right? I mean, whether we're thinking about the environment or we're thinking about um, how to live a good life or we're thinking about big topics like human migration, you know, knowing how to engage with complexity, knowing how to look closely, knowing how to explore multiple interpretations, explore multiple viewpoints are all really important thinking skills. So we began the project by really looking for that intersect of the kinds of thinking dispositions or thinking skills that um, are really useful in terms of looking at art and the kinds that are really useful in terms of thinking across the curriculum and about larger issues in the world. So we identified a set of six, we called it the artful thinking palette. And I'll tell you them quickly, um, they won't be any surprise to you. It's sort of the idea, these are some of the things that we do at this rich intersect. We reason, we ask questions of interpretation. What does something mean? What's going on? We ask questions, we observe closely, we make comparisons, we look for complexity, and we explore viewpoints. Mm. So those are sort of, we call that the artful thinking palette, those six areas of thinking. And the idea of the project was to engage students in conversations that drew from each of these areas of thinking as they discussed works of art. So that's how the project began. And um, actually the research element of that project ended about 10 or 15 years ago, but the project has since been you know, very active in schools. Um, there are quite a few museums around the world that are, have sort of taken artful thinking, thinking routines and adapted them to museum settings. And um, it's an exciting project. Okay. And I'm so interested to like how, how people have adapted it for their own use. Maybe any examples of that that you could share with us? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I'm thinking um, two quick examples in museums that come to mind is the Philadelphia Museum of Art here in the, in the United States in the state of Pennsylvania ha, um, has a program called Sherlock after Sherlock Holmes where they use artful thinking um, to help young people sort of look for mysteries and explore sort of puzzles of interpretation in works of art, but they also provide materials for the educate for classroom teachers to use in their regular curriculum so that the students can come into the museum or look at works in the classroom, build their thinking skills sort of in this Sherlocky kind of way, nice. um, and then apply them across the curriculum. So that would be um, one project that would be a good example. And I think there are many like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, you know, something that um, anyone in any country can actually easily adapt and uh, use that basis, you know, for their own sort of, and, and change it about and, and, you know, adapt it to their own needs. And, and I would add that, um, you know, when we initially developed the project, we tried to do a little research to find out what it was like to sort of take it up if you were an educator. So we, so we tracked how teachers' ideas about art and ideas about thinking 
sort of changed as they got involved in the project. And we also tracked how students' ideas about art and about thinking changed. And actually, there was a really interesting finding that um, still moves me, uh, which is that both teachers and students went from worrying about how we choose a good work of art to talk about to thinking about how we have a good conversation about a work of art. And that was a really important shift because you don't have to be an expert in art. You don't have to be an art historian or a curator to have really deep, rich conversations about works of art because works of art, yes, they mean what their creators intended them to mean, but they also mean much more than that. They, they, they're they alive in the world and, and the meanings that we make are also really important. So it's exciting to see people use these routines that are very accessible to talk about works of art that they may not be experts in, but they can still have really deep conversations. So one of the things I feel proud about about the Artful Thinking program is that it's been uh, it's provided some tools for educators who may not be comfortable talking about works of art to feel much more comfortable and use their skills as an educators because educators know how to help young people have rich conversations and they can use those skills to explore art and also to develop critical thinking. Okay. All right. That's excellent. I need to look into that a lot more. Um, and just to sort of move on, Sherry, your latest book uh, is called Slow Looking, The Art and Practice of Learning Through Observation. Now, this was something that seems simple enough, but it's something I never thought about, you know, um, slow looking. Can you tell me what slow looking is about and, you know, and why does it matter? Sure. Well, thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> You know, it's something I'm quite passionate about. Um, I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, looking closely at works of art is a great place to start building thinking skills and dispositions. And over the years through my work, I began to notice that so much rich thinking happened not only when people were building interpretations and identifying complexity and doing these other high-level things, but just in these prolonged moments of observation, when you took the time to say, what do you see? What more do you see? What else can you notice? So much thinking, rich thinking can start in that moment that I got really interested in trying to figure out what was happening there. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the beginning of trying to understand what's happening when people slow down to look closely we ended up writing a book about it, as you mentioned. So there's lots of things one could say about it. But you asked, what is it? And, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, I probably would have given a, a long answer. But I have a short answer now. <laughs> and if you had to define slow looking, how I like to define it is just to say that it's taking the time to look beyond a first glance. You know, so the definition isn't about the amount of time you take. It's rather about the intention to look again and just hold a little bit of space to see what you see. And I do want to underscore that I tend to use the language of the visual, looking, seeing, and so forth. But of course, we observe with all our senses. And so I want the phrase slow looking to really mean slowly noticing the world in, in all the ways that we can notice it. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is. And... Um, I, I, I believe through my experience with artful thinking and, and seeing what happens in classrooms and museums and other settings, business settings and so forth, when people take the time to slow down, that I think we have some 
misconceptions that once we get over them, we can really leverage the power of slow looking. And one of the misconceptions is that it takes willpower and discipline to slow down. Some, but I think that, that actually, if you give the mind a chance to have some space to engage with the question, what do you notice? You immediately become very engaged in that. So to just take young people, for example, or young children to say, take a minute to tell me four things you notice. You'll find that six-year-olds and 60-year-olds have no trouble engaging with that question. It's not boring. It doesn't take willpower. There's, there's lots to see in the world and lots to engage our minds and our hearts if we just create a little bit of bracketed space to let that happen. So slow looking is really about techniques or strategies for how to take that space, whether the space lasts for 30 seconds, 30 minutes or, or whatever. And, you know, sometimes educators say, well, that's all well and good, but we don't have any time. You know, the curriculum mm. is packed. There's, we've got so much we've got to teach kids or we've got so much we've got to get done. Why should we take this time to slow down 10 minutes out of the curriculum, 30 minutes out of the curriculum, 15 minutes out of a business meeting, 20 minutes out of a faculty meeting? And the reason is because when you do that, such rich, complex thinking can develop that it's actually a really efficient way to build understanding and build knowledge. If you take 15 minutes to ask a small group of people, what do you notice? What do you think is going on? What ideas do you have based on what you notice? What questions do you ask? You'll find out that the kind of understanding that they begin to develop really goes quite far beyond what they might learn by just passively listening to a lecture. So not only is slow looking engaging and it builds on learners' own ideas as we've talked about before, but it's also um, a very dense thinking experience that packs a lot of power in terms of larger understandings. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking of my own two children. They're quite young, you know, um, three and seven. And uh, half the time, you know, it's just where, you know, dashing them from one thing to another, isn't it? And I've been trying to tell myself, slow down, you know, just, you know, do one thing at a time, take it slow. And and that's something I wanted to ask. So how can we foster slow looking in our children in this incredibly fast paced world that they live in? It's a great question. And people do ask that a lot. And I and I ponder on that as well. It goes back a little bit to the def, uh, what I was saying about the definition that, that slow isn't about sort of quiet time. Mm. It's about a particular kind of activity. So with young children, you know, it's developing the excitement and enthusiasm about going and noticing things in the world. So, you know, give your kid a, a camera and say, go out and take me three pictures of things that are interesting in the backyard or interesting as we walk down the sidewalk. Maybe it's a, a weed growing up between a crack and a sidewalk or an interesting signpost or something interesting on a building, but just find some things that are really interesting to look at or go off and find three things that are the color blue that are kind of different and show them to me and let's see what we can think about them or learn about them. So. I think that with young children, you know, slow looking might not look slow to us from our adult eyes, but if it involves noticing new things in the world and finding a diversity of things to notice and wonder about, I think that counts as slow looking. So we shouldn't look for the slow pace 
we should look for the capacity to notice many things. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I will definitely remember that and, <laughs> and try it with the two of them. Um, and I, I, what would you say are the benefits, you know, of doing that, especially for, for maybe for younger children? Well, um, one, I think, is intrinsic engagement. Um, I think that you'll find that, you know, at least with, we'll say, five-year-olds, I'm not an expert in, in, in children too much younger than that, but get really excited about going out and noticing things in the world. They're naturally curious. So to provide activities that build on their natural curiosity is intrinsically engaging for students. So that's one benefit. It just builds on students' natural curiosity. Another benefit, um, sort of harking back to something we chatted about earlier, is that it sends the message that they're active learners, that learning isn't all about having them say, go look at this, but it's rather, I can find something interesting to look at. And so building that, that, that awareness that, that you can be your own explorer, you can discover interesting things in the world, I think is a really powerful understanding for young people that can serve them really well as they grow and become active learners in the world. Um, And then a third benefit, um, I think, is that, as we also were chatting about earlier, when you do slow looking in the company of others, it's a really exciting way to connect. You know, if you go out and I'm just going to make up this example, but if you and your your children go out and each of you try to find three exciting things to look at in your immediate environment and then show them to each other and then ask each other questions about it, it's a wonderful way to learn together about about your everyday environment. And I guess a last thing I'd say is that is sort of underscoring the everyday. Um, it's not that slow looking has to be about everyday things because there are plenty of rarefied or special things that we can look at slowly, but there is so much in our everyday world that goes unnoticed, but that is tremendously interesting. And as we think, think about some of the incredibly complex problems that need to be solved in the world by adults. Sometimes solutions are in the way that everyday things work, the complexity of everyday things that we have overlooked. So we can find answers often in the everyday. So developing a sensitivity to the wonders of the everyday, I think, is a real benefit of slow looking. Mm-hmm. Okay, I love that. Before I let you go, um, this is slightly, you know, uh, different from what we've been talking about. But I just wanted to ask you about this one other thing. Uh, you co-direct something called Arts as Civic Commons, right? And that's a project that explores how learners can investigate civic themes uh, and and develop civic agency through experiences with contemporary art. So just kind of continuing on our theme of art. Can you just briefly tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um the Arts of Civic Commons project was a, a collaboration with an organization in um, the state of Victoria in Australia. It was a sort of a network of schools that was interested also in engaging young people and looking at contemporary art, but as a way of sort of sparking civic dialogue. And so the, the tools that come out of that project are tools, thinking routines, among other, among other tools that classroom teachers can use to help them find works of contemporary art and have powerful conversations around them. So there are three themes that um, we think are themes that are often of great interest to contemporary artists 
and also really important in the civic realms. And those themes are not anything super surprising. One is the theme of identity. One of the questions that's so important as we think about civic engagement is who are we? Who are others in the world? How do our identities shape the way that we see others in the world? How do our identities shape the way others see us? And how can we sort of explore and navigate that space? It's a, that's a, that's a, those are a set of questions that many contemporary artists are interested in. Another theme that many contemporary artists are interested in is the systems dimension of our world, whether we're thinking about big issues like climate change or human migration or issues of social justice and equity. Um, many contemporary artists are focused on sort of the systems, the human-made systems that entrench us in some of these problems and how these systems can be changed to help solve some of these big problems. Um, so thinking about so in the civic realm, thinking about how, what kinds of systems connect us in the world, whether global systems of economic systems or ecosystems, or whether they're very local systems of justice and equity, thinking about how um, systems in the world connect us and how those systems can be changed for civic betterment is, yet, is another theme. And then lastly, a third theme is sort of the theme of envisioning or envisioning how we might live in a better world, which is also a big piece of um, civic dialogue. We try to, not only does civic dialogue try to bring out some of the civic challenges that we all face, but it also tries to help us envision better civic futures. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, the Arts of Civic Common Project um, develops thinking routines and other conversational strategies that can help young people see these themes in works of contemporary art and also think about these themes as they think about their own communities and talk about the challenges in their communities. Okay, that sounds really, really exciting. And uh, and that, that's something that's uh, ongoing now, right? It's um, uh, something that you're currently... It, it, it's just recently finished up and, okay. and it's easily found on the Project Zero website under the projects tab. You can look up Archivist Commons and there's little videos and a handbook and so forth for anybody who's interested in learning more about it. Okay. All right. Contact. Okay. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Sherry, for joining me today. Um, and, you know, if anyone's interested to get in touch, um, I guess, you know, just head to the Project Zero website. That would be a good way to, to find out, you know, see all those resources and get in touch with you as well. That's That's absolutely right. Okay. We welcome visitors to the website. All right. And that website, of course, is pz.harvard.edu. That's uh, pz.harvard.edu. So Project Zero, of course. My um, thanks again to my guest, Sherry Tishman, the lecturer at Harvard Graduate School of Education and a senior research associate at Harvard Project Zero, where she formerly served as director. If you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash learn, or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Out of the Box on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.